Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, historian, author and broadcaster James Holland talks about volume two of his history of the Second World War, The War in the West, The Allies Fight Back. The episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 30th of September 2017. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for coming. And um, actually, the last time I was in Ireland talking about the Second World War was at Listowel a couple of years ago. And uh, while I was there, I had a rather bizarre experience because uh, Phil Marshall uh, Rommel sat down next to me. I kid you not. Uh, and there he was, all bedecked um, in, you know, absolute... General, you know, Field Marshal Rommel's kit. He had all the kind of, you know, the red shoulder tabs on his hands. He had the shiny leather boots, the breeches, the whole thing. I mean, he really did look like it. Even had the kind of, you know, Paul Emerite, you know, the, um, the blue max around his collar. And he said, uh, how do you do, Field Marshal Rommel, but you can call me Irwin. Sorry about the, uh, the bad accent, but, um, uh, but, but he was delightful, actually, a really nice fellow. Uh, but, but I hadn't realized there was such a sort of thriving Second World War kind of reenactment groups here in, um, in, in Ireland. And this particular fellow had a just an incredible array of, of, of costumes. Apparently, Rommel was just the tip of the iceberg. It was absolutely amazing. Um, I, uh, you know, the war was a long old time. It went on for six years, and I, I've got an hour uh, and we should talk about it. And, um, you know, I'm halfway through this, well, no, I'm two-thirds of the way through this three-volume history of the new history of the Second World War in the West. Uh, I'm going to get as far as I possibly can in the next sort of 50, 55 minutes and then have a few questions and so on. But if I don't get to the end, don't, let's not worry about it. Let's, the, the main point is to get across some sort of main themes, I think, and, and sort of introduce you to kind of my thesis on all this. But I'm going to start off with some with some kind of perceptions, I suppose. And I think when we're talking about... Germans, when we're thinking about Germans in the Second World War, we think of them as probably the best soldiers. Man for man, the Germans were tops. And we're thinking about fellows like this, you know, badass kind of Joachim Piper, Waffen-SS tank commander with his little dimple in his chin and, you know, looking tough and mean and ferociously good looking with his skull and crossbones cap at a jaunty angle. Oh, we're thinking of Americans. I mean, isn't this amazing? You know, when you look at, I mean, I'm sure some of you have watched Band of Brothers and Bridge Too Far and Saving Private Ryan and all the rest of it, you know, all fantastic stuff. But, you know, when you think of a, of, of a, of a GI in, in the Second World War, that's who you're thinking of. You know, the strap under his helmet undone, couple of days of stubble, uh, again at a Georgie angle. He's just doing his bit for Uncle Sam. I mean, look at the date. That's August the 14th, 1944. You know, you can just see where all these film directors and, and set designers, and all that, you know, that's where they got it from. It's from photos like that. That's the image that we hold in our mind. And again, you know, fabulously good looking. You know, he's got fantastic teeth um, and square jawed and all the rest of it. Then you think of Russians and you think of kind of, you know, you know pale-eyed beauties, but lethal with their sniper rifles. Um, and then you think of British people and, and <laughs> you know, you laugh, but that's Stanley Hollis VC, I'll have you know. Only British soldier to win a Victoria Cross on D-Day. And of course, he's got terrible teeth and you know if he took his battle dress off, you'd be all skinny and you'd see his ribs uh, and all the rest of it. Or you're thinking of men like that, you know, General Carton Dwight, you know, the base on which, which General Ritchie Hook in the Evelyn War novels was based. Um, and again, the sort of impression, isn't it, is of sort of faded empire, of sort of stuck in the past, sort of technologically lagging, all the rest of it. And it is amazing how much, I think, um, these perceptions 
still have quite a deep root. I mean, you know, the sort of the narrative of the Second World War goes something like this. At the start of the war, the Germans were the best. They had the best kit, they had the best tanks, they had the best machine guns, best soldiers, best everything. Um, slightly let down by Hitler, perhaps. Um, uh, and then, you know, the French got, got whipped. Um, we scuttled back across the channel. Then there was the Battle of Britain, thank God for the few. Um, and we just managed to hold out, thanks to Spitfires and, and Churchill's oratory. Um, and thereafter, we kind of sort of just hung in there. Then the Americans came in, arsenal of democracy. We hung from their shirt tails. Um, the Germans kind of bled themselves to death against the kind of, in, you know, in the vast steps of the Soviet Union. Uh, and ultimately, we prevailed through kind of industrial might and sheer numbers. Uh, and that is the kind of, you know, in a nutshell, what most people think about the narrative of the Second World War. And I'm not sure that is, that is true. Uh, attached to that is this idea of, you know, tough, hardened. I mean, look at that guy. You wouldn't want to miss it, come up against him, would you? Look at that jaw. He's really mean. You know, he's going to, you know, he's going to pump you full of lead if you cross him. Uh, and there he is, you know, he's got sort of, um, you know, belts of machine gun bullets all around him. He's actually from the Waffen-SS Totenkopf Division, who were very well kitted out, but really badly trained in 1940. Um, and when they got crossed, they, what they liked to do was line people up and shoot them, uh, any of their prisoners. They were really, really unsavory. Uh, but we also, of course, think of, you know, when you think of Blitzkrieg, you think of the Nazi war machine. It's all about mechanization. It's about panzers. It's about half-tracks. Lots of them. Lots of mechanization. Uh, or you think of Stukas and uh, Stuka dive bombers and all the rest of it. And, you know, the Luftwaffe and having complete dominance of the sky. That is, you know, in a nutshell, the Blitzkrieg years. The interesting thing about the narrative of the Second World War is for about the last sort of 50, probably even 60 years, it's really concentrated on two parts. Basically, war is understood to be fought on three levels. The first level is the strategic level. The strategic level is big aims, overviews, you know, defeat the Nazis, get to Berlin, uh, cross the channel and invade Britain, whatever it might be. You know, you, the, the, this is Hitler, Roosevelt, Churchill. It, it's probably even Montgomery and Rommel and Patton and all the rest of it. But it's that high end. Uh, then there is the tactical level, which is the coal face of war. This is your Japanese Spitfire, bloke in tank, you know, GI crouching in foxhole somewhere near Saint Lo in the Normandy Bocage. That's the tactical bit. And when you read um, a book about the Second World War, or you look at a documentary program, or even, frankly, a film, what you're focusing on is that boots on the ground, you know, eyewitness accounts, diaries, letters from, you know, Private X or Captain Y. Uh, and you're focusing on that high-level stuff, you know, really sort of intimate uh, um, um, detail on what it was like in Eisenhower's headquarters. And, and that is the focus, but it completely misses out that third level, which of course is the operational level. Now, the operational level is the glue that binds the strategic to the tactical. At its basic level, it's the nuts and bolts. It is economics. It is a supply of war. It's making sure American soldiers have enough Hershey bars. It's making sure that British soldiers have enough tea and bully beef and so on. But it is also the supply of tanks. It's also how you, how you actually orchestrate and organize your war. And this is the level that has largely been left out of the narrative. And once you reinsert it, a really quite different picture emerges. And my Damascene moment came some years ago when I was just about to start a, a fictional series. And I suddenly realized that my my main character, who was a British Tommy, 
going going to go through the Second World War. I didn't really know enough about the kind of nuts and bolts of what of, of how these men operated and lived and existed. So one of the things I wanted to do was go and sort of you know look at that stuff and that kit and, and particularly the small arms and the weaponry they'd have been using. So I went to Shrivenham, which is the uh, Joint Services Staff College in in the UK. And there's a rather splendid gentleman called Lieutenant Colonel John Starling, retired. And he is in charge of the small arms unit there. And there they've got small arms all the way back from sort of 1700 right through to the present day. And as you can imagine, there's a huge amount of Second World War stuff there. And one of the first things I saw was a German MG42, the Spandau, as we called it. This is a sort of lethal machine gun that has a rate of fire of around sort of 1400 rounds a minute. You know, it can slice you in half if, if, you, if you get hit by it. And I said, well, of course, you know, that's the, uh, the, the finest small arms uh, machine gun of the Second World War. And he just turned to me and went, says who? Says who? And the next five minutes proceeded to completely deconstruct everything I thought I knew, which wasn't very much at the time, about Second World War weapons. It was absolutely brilliant. And it set me down a path of research from which I haven't really kind of looked back. Uh, and at that point, I started to get so irritated reading all these books about, um, about the Second World War, where I felt that they got the emphasis all wrong, that I thought, well, let's just put up or shut up, you know, rather arrogantly. And so this is why I'm in this situation here where I've got kind of two books to do and I'm kind of thinking, oh my God, I've got to face the final years of the war. My wife always says, says you know, the war lasted six years, but I've been living it for 18. And, uh, you know, uh, um, and it, is, it does get a bit all-consuming, it have to be, has to be said. So if I told you this picture, for example, was of a British cavalry unit in 1882, um, unless you looked at it very closely, I'm sure most of you would, would accept that at face value. In fact, it isn't. It's a German artillery unit in June 1940 in France. Uh, it is an absolute myth that they were a war machine. They weren't. Just the leading, the, the tip of the spear was motorized. A panzer division um, was not a division full of tanks. It was a division that was full of tanks and artillery and troops, but all of whom were motorized. The vast majority of German divisions moved around from A to B on their own two feet or by horse and cart. Uh, and here you are. And also, some of them didn't have square jaws, uh, were short-sighted, uh, were actually a little bit on the plump side. It's amazing. But they really were. They didn't all have um, uh, little divots in their chins and, and were tall and blonde and blue-eyed and, and, you know, hunky. Um, uh, and this is really how most Germans got together. They're wearing uniforms, which are basically a late 19th century uniform with a bit of a Nazi twist on it. Um, they've got jack boots on, uh, high leather, which is completely pointless and utter waste of money. Leather is expensive. What's the point of having a jack boot when you could have an ankle boot? Uh, all their webbing is leather. The British Army um, in 1914, winter of 1914, 1915, decided that that was a complete waste of time because in winter, leather gets wet. When it dries again, it goes brittle and hard and it rots very quickly. And it's expensive. Uh, much better to have canvas, which is cheap and cheerful. And if it goes, if it dries, you know, once it gets wet, when it dries again, it's exactly the same. Uh, um, so much more practical. But of course, you know, part of Nazi war machine is or the war effort is um, uh, is being about a militaristic society, and it's about looking the part. It's about kind of you know having your your back straight and all the rest of it. Uh, and so that is considered important. Um, the other thing is this myth about mechanization. I mean, it's really, really amazing. There's, a, there's um, Whitaker's Almanacs, an absolute minefield of, uh, not absolute mine rather, of, um, of little tidbits and amazing bits of information. And um, in 1939 edition of Whitaker's Almanac, it has a list of, of, of the number of cars and motor vehicles in the various countries around the world. And it makes for really, really fascinating reading. And it just goes to show that as a historian, you know, you sometimes need to think a little bit outside of the box when you're doing your research. 
And it may surprise you to know that despite Alfa Romeo and Fiat and all the rest of it, there were 106 Italians for every motorised vehicle in Italy in the summer of 1939, or in 1939. Uh, that figure was 47 in Germany. So 47 Germans for every motorised vehicle in, in, in Germany. That figure was 14 in the UK, it was 8 in France, and it was 3 in the United States. So perhaps not so much surprise about the US, but I think maybe a surprise about France. 8 compared to 47. In other words, France is incredibly automotive. Germany isn't. Now, one of the problems facing Germany is a massive shortage of food. And one of the reasons they're so short of food is because their agriculture is incredibly inefficient. Lots of small farms, almost zero mechanization whatsoever. They haven't got lots of Fordsons and things. Uh, what they've got is scythes. They're still very good looking and blonde, but they are... Um, but they have scythes. And this, if I told you that, again, that this was taken in 1935 in, I don't know, let's say Latvia. Um, again, I'm not sure that most of you would uh, doubt what I'm saying. In fact, it's not. It's taken in Germany. And these are German peasants. Um, and as you can see, they are hand sewing. German agriculture was spectacularly inefficient, which is why they're all hungry. Germany uh, instigated rationing in the summer of 1939, um, way before it went to war and um, way before Britain did. And in fact, actually, France, never, as a, the French government, never in, instigated rationing at all. I mean, obviously, the Germans, once they conquered it, instigated rationing. But up until uh, June 1940, there was no rationing in France at all because their agriculture was good. They had huge, great uh, stores of grain and all the rest of it, and they didn't need to. Uh, so what this means is, is that actually there's some surprising features about German war effort, and it, it shows that actually they're not quite what you think they are. And the problem with not being very automotive is you can't just suddenly change that. You can't click your fingers and suddenly have hundreds of panzer divisions um, because you don't have the factories. If, you, if you're uh, not very automotive, you don't have lots of factories building cars and trucks and tanks and all the rest of it. Um, and you don't have many garages and petrol stations and mechanics and people who know how to drive. And it is a kind of sort of, you know, there is, it, it, this thing takes time, you know. Uh, and you can't just go from sort of 47 Germans per motorized vehicle to say, two, which is what Hitler would have liked, or one. Uh, um, you know, it's not as easy as that. The German way of war is, in the Second World War, and certainly in the Blitzkrieg years, is basically the same that they've always done. You know, before Germany in 1871, that would meant Prussia. Uh, and I think this, this map is interesting because it does really show... Uh, I've just got to work out how to use this. Yeah, okay, this is great. Um, so you can see how Germany is right in the middle of Europe. And this is a, the really key thing here is to look at the coastline. And look about, if you want to get out into the world's oceans, look what you've got to do. You've got to get out through this complicated, narrow channels and through islands and stuff, or you've got this little bit here. The problem is, at the moment they go into Poland, you know, what happens? Well, of course, the Royal Navy, Britain declares an economic blockade, and the Royal Navy is the world's largest in 1939, uh, and they're blockaded, so they can't actually get out. Now, you know, most of the world's resources are moved around the world by ship. The same is true now as it was in the 1940s. And so if you can't get out into the world's oceans, you've got a bit of a problem. Um, and, and this is one of the reasons why Germany has developed a way of fighting which is short, sharp, and quick, because they know that in a long attritional war, they're going to be in trouble because they haven't got access to those resources that everyone else has, that Britain has, for example, or even France with that huge Atlantic coastline. You know, if Britain's in a great position because America, which is the world's number one oil producer in the 1940s, is the right side of the Atlantic. Um, so too is Venezuela, the Dutch East Indies. That's the second biggest oil producer in the world. The third biggest oil producer in the world is... is um, 
uh, is the Soviet Union with Baku down here. And, you know, that's a, you know, a million miles away as far as the Germans are concerned. So they haven't got access to oil. They haven't got access to the world's supplies. Where are they going to get it from if they go into a war? Well, the answer is to get that war done quickly. Part of the German way is, in, in, and part of the Nazis in the 1930s, is this kind of impression of huge military power, um, rather than actual military power. Now, of course, there is lots of military power. I mean, you, you know, that doesn't lie. There are, you know, when you look at the Nuremberg rallies, there are lots of stormtroopers, all the rest of it. They do have a large Luftwaffe. They do have lots of tanks and all the rest of it. But they're not quite as big as it's all cracked up to be. And what you have to remember is that now, when we look at a rally like that, you know, and it's Kim Jong-un or something in North Korea, we think it all looks a bit silly. Uh, but in the 1930s, the world just hadn't seen anything like this. No one had seen something like the Nuremberg rallies. And if you're a kind of peace-loving democracy, you look at that that, you think, crikey, these guys mean business, don't they? Ooh, we better kind of watch out here. And there is a kind of projection of military might. Um, I don't know if any of you were here last night. I was telling the story about General Wielemann, uh, you know, going to, going to Germany and being shown one airfield and, and the planes all took off. And then they took off and landed at another airfield, which he was then taken to. And he, you know, assumed that there were double the, the number of Messerschmitts that there actually were. And he went back to France and said, you know, we haven't got a hope. We're never going to win. You know, we must never go to war with, with, with Germany. And that actually really took root in France. France really thought that militarily, Germany was her massive superior. When in actual fact, you know, France had double the number of artillery pieces, had more troops, had about parity in terms of aircraft, um, considerably larger navy, and had tanks that were bigger, larger guns, more armour, and double the number. Uh, so on paper, you know, France should have been absolutely fine, but of course wasn't. Um, so this kind of projection of military power was a very much a big part of what the Nazis were all about in the 1930s. And a key part of this was radio technology. And while they were really, really low on numbers of cars and trucks and even BMW motorbikes, uh, um, they were very big on radios. And this is a Deutsche Kleinempfänger, uh, which is the DKF, and which is the, um, uh, the little German radio. And this is nine inches by nine inches by four inches. And in the 1930s, this was like getting an iPod for the first time, you know, back in whenever it was, 2002. Uh, and you're really, really revolutionary because in those days, you know, your radio was big and wooden and kind of took up a huge, great part of your front room. Suddenly here was something that was small and cheap and Bakelite and easy to transfer and easy to buy. And there were more radios per household in Germany than any other country in the world, including the United States. Strange but true. And of course, what this means is that everyone can, is getting the same old propaganda nonsense it's, it's, yes, they're getting Hitlerian speeches. Yes, they're getting military marches. They're even getting some light humor as well. Uh, um, I know they're Germans. It seems a bit weird, but, but it's true. Uh, and, and, but the point is that overall message is just being repeated over and over and over again. We're fantastic. We've got the best military. Hitler's the daddy man. Um, when we go and um, take on other countries, we're going to come out tops. Hooray! Uh, and everyone sort of goes, yeah, that's great. And it's sort of as though Hitler is backing it up because they've taken back the Rhineland. They've gone into, uh, you know, they've got the Anschluss of the absorption of Austria. They've uh, taken back the Sudetenland all without a shot being fired. 
said, um, you know, Hitler really is a genius and everyone's got employment and, the, you know, we've got our pride back and we're all standing a little bit straighter and we've got jack boots and we look cool and we're getting the throw line and, you know, and, and, and that is all part of this build-up to war. But the whole point is it's all on really, really, really shaky foundations. Foundations that, if you go on to a long attritional war, are simply going to be tested beyond their capability. And of course, what the Wehrmacht do, the German armed forces, is they think, hang on a minute, we've got small radios. That's handy. We can put them in a command car. We can put them in a, on a groovy BMW motorbike and sidecar. We can put them in a truck. We can put them in our panzers. Our panzer divisions can now communicate with one another really easily. So what happens is you suddenly, you, you have that speed, that speed that Germans have always done. It's called Bewegenskrieg. And Bewegenskrieg is the operational art of maneuver. And this is something the Germans have been practicing since Frederick the Elector, let alone Frederick the Great. It's what they did against Denmark in 1864. It's what they did against Austria in 1866. It's what they did against France in 1870. It's what they tried to do in 1914. And it's exactly the same that they're doing in 1939. There is no difference whatsoever to the principle behind it, which is hit your enemy very hard at the Schwerpunkt, which is the main point of attack. Then overwhelm him with a massive envelopment called the Kettleschlag, the Cauldron War, and then annihilate him. And do that as quickly as possible. And that is the German way of war. That is Bewegenskrieg. And that is what that radio does uh, in 1939, 1940. That is what, that is the key, really the key ingredient, because suddenly they've got all this new technology, this new weaponry, but they can move it with the kind of speed with which traditionally they operate, but in the 20th century. And that is the key to understanding the Blitzkrieg in 1939 to, say, 1941. The interesting thing, there's only a handful of senior commanders that get this new kind of mobile warfare. All German commanders understand Bewegenskrieg, but only a few understand how to harness this, these new panzer thrusts, these mobile thrusts of which, you know, you're using your key panzer divisions. I mean, it's really interesting that when they go uh, and attack France and the Low Countries on the 10th of May 1940, they go in with 135 divisions. If you think a division is about, give or take, 15,000 men, they go with 135 divisions, of which only 16 are motorised. Only 16 out of 135. 119 of them, it's, it's boots and horses. Um, so, but those 16, 10 are panzer divisions, you know, what, what, what I was telling you about, the tanks and the artillery and the infantry all together, and the others are just motorised divisions, so that's just artillery and infantry, lorried, but with no, pack, no tanks. So it's people like Rommel, it's people like uh, Guderian here in the middle, uh, this fellow. These are the people, these are the panzer pioneers, but they're comparatively few. The vast majority of the German generals still think, you know, that, 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 that war is going to be a slower affair, that it's not going to be as fast, that the panzers aren't going to cut it. And, of course, you've got the Luftwaffe. You've got this, this aerial artillery. You know, the Luftwaffe has emerged directly to support operations on the ground. It is what we would call a tactical air force. It is uh, providing close air support for ground troops. That is the point of the Luftwaffe. Whereas in Britain, for example, the RAF has developed these independent commands that can operate on a, as a strategic air force, that is, without any ground forces or naval forces or whatever. You know, that's why we have Bomber Command, we have Coastal Command, and so on. 
This is all great and all good for the Germans, and they have these successes, largely because the French are not operating at the same speed. They don't have lots of radios. They have uh, field telephones. In fact, actually, uh, General uh, Gamelin, who is the commander-in-chief of all French forces at the Chateau of Vincennes, which is just in the east of Paris, uh, doesn't have any telephones at all in his headquarters there because he thinks it might be a security breach. That's all well and good, and I can understand his concerns, but in the middle of a war, the key thing is to be able to give orders and receive information and then disseminate that, that what you want done with that information very, very quickly. And not having a telephone, I would argue, is slightly problematic in the middle of a war. Uh, of course, what then happens is all the landlines then get cut by Stukas and, you know, in the fog of war and all the rest of it. So they then have to send off dispatch riders. Dispatch riders sort of disappear off into the ether, don't, you know... Army group is sending off uh, a dispatch writer at six in the morning. He doesn't reappear to, uh, at midday, so they send off another one. He comes back at nine, by which time the whole thing is completely changed. And you've then got this chain of command because you've got army groups to armies to corps to divisions to battalions and all the rest of it. And you can see that what actually happens is they're like rabbits caught in headlights. They simply cannot move because orders are not coming quick enough and events are overtaking them. So no one can actually coordinate uh, uh, any kind of counterattack and any kind of force. And so what happens is this, this spearhead, this armoured, highly mobile, highly confident, totally tripping on pervertin, um, uh, um, on speed, um, these leading troops are just isolating all these French units and taking them out in detail. And that is, in a nutshell, I mean, I've simplified it, obviously, but, but that is why they lose. But what happens is, by, the, by this time, you know, here we are in May 1941, um, you know, it, it all looks great on one level, but there is a big problem because the only way Germany is going to win the war is if they completely annihilate all their enemies. And there is a big problem because they haven't annihilated all their enemies. They haven't annihilated Britain. Um, and the other problem is that they've gone into all these places and they've been like kids in sweet shop and the cupboard by the end of 1940 is bare. You know, I mentioned that France was very automotive um, uh, in, at the start of the war. You know, by the end of 1940, they had 8% of the vehicles that they had at the start of 1940. You know, 92% of French vehicles were lost. Where have they been lost to? The Germans have nabbed them because they don't have enough. That's why when you see uh, old-fashioned black Citroens driving around, everyone sort of goes, <laughs> Gestapo. And, you know, I always say, no, French resistance. Um, but, 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 you know, that is why. It's because the Germans have nicked them. You know, and they nick all the, all the British trucks um, that are left behind at Dunkirk, for example. Well, that's great. You know, well, aren't you clever? But what happens when you need a new gasket or you need a new distributor cap or, you know, whatever? You haven't got the spare parts. And it is a massive problem. Uh, and they've cleaned out all the coal reserves and they've cleaned out all the gold reserves and they've cleaned out the grains, you know, the huge piles of grain. And suddenly, by the kind of end of 1940, the Germans have kind of, you know, they've eaten all the sweets. There's nothing left. And they're kind of thinking, oh, um, uh, this is quite expensive, this occupation business, because we've got to keep troops there. And, you know, we still haven't got enough of everything. What are we going to do? And the other problem, of course, as I say, is that Britain is still... Uh, still there. They haven't defeated Britain. And of course, this is, this is, again, one of the big problems of Nazi Germany is, you know, overall strategy is run by Hitler. Hitler has an incredibly narrow worldview. He has a very narrow geopolitical understanding. And he, is, he thinks of other people think how he thinks. And that is that if you've lost your army, that's like the biggest 
disaster that could possibly be before you. But of course, in Britain, the senior service is not the army, it's the Navy. And actually, the army is tiny. You know, France has something like 140 divisions. We have 10. I mean, the Belgian army is larger than the British army in 1940. So yes, it is a big disaster. You know, Dunkirk is catastrophic. But in the big scheme of things, we've still got all our Navy. We've still got our Air Force, which is growing all the time because our, our production of aircraft is far greater than Germany's by that stage. Uh, and we've got the world's first fully coordinated air defense system. And this is, this is incredibly effective. And the Germans have never come across this. You know, in the Battle for France, the Luftwaffe can kind of run around at will. I mean, everyone else, the French and the British, when the RAF, when they take off, they're kind of flying around the sky, hoping they bump into some Luftwaffe. Um, uh, but, you know, the sky's a big old place. There's no means of actually kind of homing in on the enemy or vice versa. Um, and the Germans, hold, because they're the attackers, hold all the aces. That is not true when they're in the Battle of Britain. And the Battle of Britain is a catastrophe for the Luftwaffe, and, and they completely fail. It wasn't a close-run thing. You know, we have this myth about the Battle of Britain that it was all down to the few and all the rest of it. You know, completely failing to, to recognise the part of Bomber Command, for example, which are going over and bombing German targets every single day, pretty much, whenever the weather allows. And because the fighter range of the German fighters is so short, up in the Pas de Calais in Normandy, it is what we would call a target-rich environment. And it doesn't matter that you can't, you know, aim for toffee because you can't miss. All you've got to do is go over in your Blenheim or your Hampton and drop some bombs on the Cap Grenet and, you, you know, you're there. Uh, and, you know, that's a few less Messerschmitts to worry about. And this is happening all the time. Uh, and, of course, you know, we've got home advantage. And actually, you know, we're, our intelligence is much better. Um, German intelligence is absolutely woeful because... The whole way the Nazis have grown up is, 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 and developed is a sort of process of divide and rule. So there's lots of parallel command structures, lots of rivalries and all the rest of it. And that means that when it comes to intelligence, you tend to hang on to it because intelligence is power. So you know, why would I want to give it to him? Because then he might get a leg up and I won't. You know, and that is a, you know, that's a completely toxic situation when you're in the middle of a war. Whereas in Britain, you know, we're a democracy and, uh, and everyone pulls their, pulls their information together. I mean, there's been a slight overemphasis, I would suggest, on Bletchley Park. I mean, Bletchley Park was obviously absolutely crucial and what the codebreakers did was amazing. But it's not just that. It's that it's, it's, intelligence um, adds up to much more than some of its individual parts. It's also the Y service. It's also photo reconnaissance. It's also you know, a whole load of other services. There's, there's air intelligence, naval intelligence, uh, army intelligence, all of which is pulled together. And that means we get a pretty clear picture of what's going on in Germany and what the, what the Germans are up to. Whereas the Germans, it's about telling your boss what you think he wants to hear, which is not necessarily the truth. In fact, quite often it isn't anything close to the truth. Uh, and so much emphasis the Germans have put on dive bombers. You know, the Stukas have withdrawn after 10 days in the Battle of Britain. In the whole of the Battle of Britain, the Germans managed to knock out only one out of 138 airfields for more than 24 hours. You know, that is not a good success rate. You know, by September, you know, we think we're really struggling. We've got a shortage of pilots. That's because our squadrons, the RAF squadrons, um, should have between 20 to 22 pilots and 24 planes to keep 12 in the air at any one time. Whereas the Germans, it's just... 12 and 12. And what that means is when we're down at 75% strength in the southeast, in 11 group in the southeast of England, what that actually means is we've still got 16 or 17 pilots 
You haven't got 12. I mean, that makes it tougher. And the whole point, the reason why Dowding, who's the commander-in-chief of fighter command at the time, is so worried about it is because he doesn't want to put too much strain on his pilots. You, you know, the most a, a Battle of Britain pilot will be flying in, in any one day is four sorties. Absolutely tops, and usually never more than two. You know, by the beginning of September 1940, German pilots are regularly flying seven times. I mean, just think of the cumulative mental and physical strain of doing that, and it really starts to tell. And by the end of the Battle of Britain, we've got more planes than when we started. And the Germans have gone considerably less, so much so that when they do go into the Soviet Union in June 1941, they've still got less planes in the Luftwaffe than they had on 10th of May 1940. You know, this is, this is a bad, bad time for the Germans. It, it, it is a catastrophic failure for them. And it keeps Britain in the war. And of course, you know, Britain can call on a huge empire, the world's largest, plus resources from its extra imperial acquisitions. I mean, you know, Argentina, for example, is not part of the British Empire. But Britain owns most of it, or British companies do. It owns the railways, it owns the farms, it owns the port facilities. You know, so you don't need to kind of actually run the country, you just own its assets. Um, and this gives Britain an absolutely colossal advantage when it, goes to a, when it comes to a long, drawn-out war. If you can hang in in those first days. And, and everyone always talks about kind of, you know, the RAF being the last line of defence in 1940. It's absolutely nonsense. It's the first line of defence. Second line of defence is the Navy and the English Channel, stuffed full of mines. And the third line of defence, of course, is all the British troops, you know, in which I'm including the Home Guard. And they're not all like Dad's army. You know, actually, two and a half million troops by, that, by, by August 1940. That's a hell of a lot. Um, and of course, you know, the Germans' plans are all over the place. You know, the Navy's thinking one plan, the Army's thinking another, the Luftwaffe, and the whole thing is a complete shower. And then I come to the Navy. I mean, I love this picture. This, is, of course, is the Bismarck, the mighty battleship. Uh, and, you know, without wanting to sound rude, this is basically a penis extension for Hitler. It, it, it really is. This, is. this is about saying, I've got a big ship. Where's the fun in that? You know, I mean, lots of fun to be had. And, and you're going to stand a little bit taller, aren't you, when you smash your champagne bottle against the power of that. But, you know, you boats know. And building a large surface fleet when your number one enemy, your most dangerous enemy is Britain, which has the world's largest navy, is just completely pointless. And it is staggering that the Germans didn't go, hang on a minute, back in 1917, we had a U-boat fleet, and they did pretty well. And... You know, they nearly brought Britain to its heels. What we need to do if we're going to defeat Britain is cut off Britain's links to the outside world. Cut off those trade routes. Isolate her. How are we best going to do that? How are we best going to sink lots of shipping and stop her from getting the resources that she needs? I know, U-boats. And the great beauty about U-boats is they can go under the water and you can get through a blockade. You can get out into the North Sea. But they don't think of that. So Germany starts the war with just 3,000 men in the, in the BDU, the U-boat arm, which is just not enough. Because at the point when you do want to suddenly expand, you haven't got enough core people to be able to do that expansion. Whereas the Royal Navy is already large, and of course, you know, Britain is an island nation. Um, there are enough people when you start opening the, the Royal Navy volunteer reserves and expanding your force. There are enough people you know about sort of cutting jibs and, you know, tying clove hitches and things, that they've already got a kind of base knowledge. And, and your, your professional navy can be expanded and spread through this expanding navy. And you can bring in people who have a kind of sort of basic modicum of knowledge already. And your growth can be exponential. You can't do that with the U-boat arm when you've only got 3,000. And the truth of the matter is, is there is a golden opportunity to defeat Britain's, uh, or, or certainly make it very, very hard for her to... Uh, um, 
kind of protract the war in any shape or form by cutting off her supplies in 1940. And yet, at no point are there more than 14 U-boats operating in the Atlantic at any one time in 1940. And by January 1941, there's only six. So the age of you know, 200 U-boats and all the rest of it is still a long, long, long way off. And by the time they do get there, they haven't got enough experience. And so the new captains and the new skippers of these U-boats when they're coming in and suddenly this sudden new expanded U-boat force don't have that experience that enables them to take on the vastly bigger and way more experienced and technologically advanced Royal Navy, as well as the Royal Canadian Navy, and of course, as well as the US Navy as well. And of course, they let themselves get embroiled in, in battles that they don't need to be fighting. So when the Battle of Britain is not going terribly well, already Hitler is starting to turn to the Soviet Union. And he's thinking about the Soviet Union because he's thinking, crikey, you know what? We need supplies. We need food. We need oil. We need copper. We need bauxite. The only place we're going to get it because we don't have any shipping is going to be the Soviet Union. And do you know what? He's absolutely right. There really is no other choice in this. Originally, he's planning to go into the Soviet Union, you know, sort of 1943, 1944. But then he thinks, well, they had all those purges in the 1930, late 1930s, so a lot of their leadership has been severed. And then they got a little bit of a kind of egg on their face when they took on Finland in 1939, 1940. Uh, we've just defeated France, uh, one of the world's superpowers. So the Soviet Union, I mean, you know, how hard can it be? That's what they're thinking. Unfortunately, the Italy, her ally, then makes a complete hash of going into France, makes a complete hash of taking on the British in Egypt. Uh, and suddenly, they're having to come to their rescue because, again, in the narrative, it's always been made out that it is Britain that obsessed with about the Mediterranean and the North Africa and all the rest of it. And this was small beer and a complete sideshow compared to the kind of vast um, boots on the ground of the Soviet Union. But actual fact, Hitler is the one who really obsesses about the Mediterranean and the southern flank, you know, the soft underbelly. He's absolutely paranoid about it. And one of the reasons he's paranoid about it is because Plesti in Romania is the only oil source he has at that time. And so he really worries that kind of Britain going to get a foothold in the Aegean, in the Mediterranean, in Greece, in Italy, and then push on up and actually, you know, and, and attack his oil reserves. So that's why he's so um, keen to help. But of course, he needs this like a bolt in the head. You know, he's just about to have the biggest clash of arms the world has ever seen. He doesn't want any distraction of resources whatsoever. And yet in April, he goes into the Balkans, then goes into Greece. And as if that isn't enough, then goes into Crete. I mean, Crete, yes, it is a German victory, but it is utterly pointless. I mean, it is a, it's utterly pointless. But it is, I would argue, a really bad strategy just four weeks before the invasion of the Soviet Union. Barbarossa starts in the third week of June, 1941. This happens in the third week of May, 1941. And, you know, half of his most elite troops are wiped out. The Falschermjäger, the paratroopers. He loses 250 transport planes. And boy, is he going to need those when he gets into the Soviet Union. And, and, and at the end of it, yes, OK, they've got the island. But so what? Um, you know... That means the British bombers can't be based on Crete itself, but you know there are. You don't, you don't need to worry about that because you've got bases in Greece, you've got bases in the Balkans from which you could attack potentially RAF airfields in Crete. Uh, and, a, and a couple of months later, in July 1941, Britain and the Free French take over Syria, and with it all the Syrian airfields. So it kind of the Syrian airfields that the British capture in Syria sort of counters out the airfields that the Germans have captured. In Crete, it's just a complete waste of time. I mean, it's just a bonkers, bonkers strategy. 
Meanwhile, of course, I think you can argue, and I, and I have argued, and I think one can argue convincingly, that the Battle of the Atlantic is effectively lost to Germany in May 1941. We, again, we tend to view the war in a very sort of land-centric way, in the same way that Hitler viewed it, frankly. Uh, but actually, you need to see it in, 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 you know, not as ink spots. You know, the Battle of the Atlantic is not a separate episode. It is all part of this bigger narrative of what's going on. And the Battle of the Atlantic is absolutely critical because not only does that the means by which Britain is being supplied, it is also the means by which future offensives against Germany and against, you know, crossing her back into the continent are going to be carried out. Without that, you know, you're lost. And Britain puts most of its research and development effort into winning the Battle of the Atlantic ASAP. You know, out of this comes the cavity magnetron. The cavity magnetron is one of the genius inventions that the British come up with, uh, um, you know, ever, but certainly in the war. And this enables you to put very, you know, reduce the size of radar, so much so that you can put it on a boat or you can put it on uh, an aircraft. And the Germans never know that we've invented this. It's not something they never understand right till the end of the war. Uh, and on top of that, we're improving high-frequency direction finding. We're improving our weaponry, our torpedoes, um, our depth charges. And in Ma March, April, May 1941, these are critical times because three of the big aces that the Germans have, the U-boat aces, are either killed or captured. Uh, that is uh, Gunter Preen on the left. Um, he's killed. That is Otto Schepke in the middle. He's killed. And that is Kretschmer on the right, who is captured. Um, these are irreplaceable, these guys. Their, their experience, their skill, their brilliance, their daring. You know, they need these people for the rest of the war, and they've just gone. Um, and don't forget, it's that very, very small U-boat force at that stage. Then in May, um, yes, we lose HMS Hood, which is a, is a big blow, but we've got the world's largest navy, so we can take that hit. They then lose the Bismarck, which they can't afford to lose. Um, and also, they do lose an Enigma machine and the codes. You know, these are really important breakthroughs. And really, the technological gap is just widening so much at that point that, yes, more U-boats are going to come into play, and yes, there is going to be the slaughter off the Americas and all the rest of it. But in actual fact, the, 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 the line has... the the kind of tipping point has already been reached by which, yes, there's lots of sort of hard yards to come and terrible times, but actually the Germans have got to a point where already they're realistically never going to win because they're just being out-technologized. That's not really a word, but you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, and the, the strength of the British and the burgeoning um, effort of the Canadians who punch massively above their weight. And then later in 1941, uh, from the summer of 1941, the US Navy as well. These are combined forces for which the Germans have no answer. And the slaughter that comes in 1942 off the Americas, for example, that is really a, you know, that is a slaughter of America's own making by refusing to have a convoy system in place at that point. And of course, the very fact that it's happening on the east coast of America means that all the U-boats have got to get all the way over there. And that's a huge amount of time. And they operate on a rule of thirds. So a third in action, a third coming back and forth, and a third kind of warming up, having repairs, training, and all the rest of it. So if you've got 300 U-boats in your fleet, that still means you've only got 100 in action at any one time. The Atlantic is a big old place. And then you've got Hitler into interfering and transferring them to the Mediterranean and so on. And, and you know, you're losing that initiative. Uh, and people don't kind of think about this. You know, 1941 is always seen as a dark year for Britain. But actually, it's not because at sea, we're winning. You know, in the air, we're starting to win. Um, so the Middle East is, is, in many ways, small bear. Um, and then, of course, comes Operation Barbarossa. How am I doing for time? Um, yeah, I've got to 1941, halfway through 1941. So, you know, only another four years to go. Uh, um, so yeah, so so 
Okay, so what happens here is, again, this is Bavagan's Krieg. This is, you've got to hit this really hard. We've got to defeat the, the Red Army within 500 miles. Because only within 500 miles can we maintain that speed, that flexibility, that maneuverability, which is the kind of key, the USP of the Nazi, and let's call it war machine, because it is the machinery bit that is doing the main, the main thrust, that spearhead, the, the tip of the spear. And what happens is, to start off, it all seems to be going swimmingly to plan as, as vast numbers of armies, uh, Red Army armies are uh, encircled and cut off. You know, 750,000 prisoners captured. Um, but then it all starts to slow down. And the other feature, of course, is that the Germans go into the Soviet Union with a level of violence and brutality that they haven't demonstrated in their earlier battles. And the truth of the matter is, is the Ukraine were ripe for coming over onto the Nazi side. I mean, let's not forget the famine of the 1930s, you know, which many in Ukraine blamed entirely on Stalin. There were lots of people who were very keen to see the Nazis, you know, come on in. Uh, and what do they do? They round them up, they torch villages, um, you know, they, they line up the elders, they shoot them, um, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, it's a massive sort of shooting themselves in the foot because a potential huge source of manpower is not being taken on board. And, you know, they're treated as untermentioned. They're racially inferior. This is a racial war. There's suddenly this idea, the Nazi ideology is starting to take over from the pragmatics. Pragmatics are, we need supplies, we need food, we need oil, we need all the things that the, you know, we need Lebensraum, living space. But ideology is getting in the way of that practical need as well. And actually, they're cutting themselves off to kind of spite their face. And, you know, they treat the, the Russian prisoners absolutely appallingly. And, of course, you know, the Soviet Union is 10 times the size of France. It's 1,200 uh, miles long, the battlefront, compared to kind of, you know, 120 in 1940 when they go into France and the Low Countries. That's a big old difference. And actually, the very lack of infrastructure in the Soviet Union works against them. That infrastructure that France had, the fact that France was so automotive, was the most automotive society in Europe, actually worked in Germany's advantage because, you know, when your panzer ran out of fuel, you just go to a filling station and go, you know, fill her up, please, Jean-Pierre. Uh, you can't do that in the Soviet Union because there aren't any. You know, the railway lines have a different gauge. So when your, your trucks don't work, you're dependent on the Reichsbahn, the, the railway, which is completely overburdened. And what you're having to do as you progress into the Soviet Union is change the tracks to the continental, European continental loading gauge, which is narrower slightly than the Russian one. I mean, can you imagine? It just makes your head hurt just thinking about the logistics of that. And you've got all these prisoners who you're not treating very well. And because you've got so many boots on the ground, because you've now got kind of 195 divisions, you had to, the only way you can do that is by taking men out of the factories. So if you take out of the factories, they then can't make Messerschmitts and ammunition and panzers and all the rest of it. So how, how do you fill it? Well, you fill it with slave labor. But slave labor is unmotivated. And, and not being looked after well. And if your German citizens are already not getting enough food, you're not going to give a German, you know, a prisoner of war more than you're going to give a German citizen. So they get less food, so they start to starve, so they get ill. You know, British rationing is not 
um, about being short of food. It is about making sure that everyone in the country gets their equal share, because before the war, they weren't. You had poor people in tenements in Leeds getting bread and dripping, while everyone else, you know, a whole load of other people could sort of take what they wanted. The whole point about rationing is to make sure that everyone gets enough, and that those in the factories get a little bit more, and they get a balanced diet. And if you have a, enough food and you get a balanced diet, then you don't go sick. And if you don't go sick, you can make more aircraft. So it's not about altruism, it's about pragmatism. Uh, and the British really are incredibly tough and ruthless and, and, and pragmatic. They're not like Captain Mannering. Uh, whereas the Germans, they are utterly ruthless and brutal, but they're shooting themselves in the foot in the process. You know, all these prisoners who are treated like dirt, um, half of them will die within six months. Um, and as workers and factory workers, of course, they're not incredibly effective. And so you suddenly got this spiral where everything is, is going out of, out of sync and your plan... Completely conquest, you know, the complete conquest of the Soviet Union in three months is starting to go awry because it's all very fine when it's summer um, and it's hot and you know your tanks work, but um, getting supplies up is an absolute nightmare. And it's getting the further you're going, the further you're going into Germany. They've set this goal of we've got to beat the Red Army within 500 miles. I would say actually 300 is about about it. Because beyond that, all those gaskets in those British Bedfords that you've captured at Dunkirk are starting to kind of play up. You know, there's gaps in them. They don't work anymore. And the wheels are literally starting to come off, which means you're overly dependent on the railways, which you're furiously trying to kind of, you know, re-amend the gauge and you can't do it quick enough. And suddenly that speed, that USP with which the Germans operate, suddenly it's not quite, they're not quite so special after all. And so here you are, you know, trucks, forget the trucks, let's move on trains, and here they are. I mean, crikey, look at that. I mean, you know, it just tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? I mean, look at that huge, vast expanse. This is how the German army is now moving, and that is not good enough. It's, it's not fast enough. And of course, then it starts to rain, and then it starts to snow, and all those trucks are, are starting to break down. And look at that, isn't that miserable? Uh, and by the end of November, they've just shot their bolt. They're just, they can't move. And suddenly all these Russian troops uh, in their T-34s with their kind of, you know, extra thin oil that works in freezing conditions do still work, whereas German ones don't. And they're grinding to a halt. And note all the horses. You know, where are your panzers now, you know, Fritzy? Um, they're not here. And... Um, you know, it's really interesting. I found, a, you know, and they're still building these incredibly over-engineered equipment and machinery and so on. I found this absolutely devastating um, document when I was in the German archives a few years ago uh, there at a place called Freiburg, which is in the Black Forest. And it was this memo, and it was written on the 4th of December. 4th of December, 1941, of this incredible week um, in December, 1941. And... Um, it said, we have to stop making such complete anesthetic weapons. Okay, and it was written by George Thomas, who was the head of the economics division of the OKW, the German general staff, but it was signed by Hitler. And what that says to me is that up until that point, they had quite consciously and deliberately been making complete anesthetic weapons. This is total war. You know, you just need to just get on with it. You know, a, a German MG34 took 150 man hours. A British Bren gun took 50. You know, these things are important. They, they're not important when you're on the ground, you know, in your foxhole. All you care about is the fact that it's a German machine gunner firing a huge rate of bullets. But, uh, but in the overall picture, you do need to understand this stuff. You know, and this is really, really important. 
It really is. You know, I've got, I've, I've got a deactivated MG34, as you do, back at home. Uh, and it comes with a spare barrel. Actually, they came with six. On my spare barrel, it's got nine inspection stamps on it. I would argue that nine of those are a complete waste of time, and certainly eight of them are absolute waste of time. I mean, what are you doing putting different inspection stamps on it? Just build them and get them out. You know, it's, it's, it, they seem incapable of the kind of levels of mass production you need once your war has gone on longer than six weeks. And of course, the big event is, you know, that's the 4th of December, the night of the 5th, 6th of December, the Russian counterattack opposite Moscow. Russian troops emerging out of the blizzards in the night, um, shocking these, you know, as temperatures freeze to minus 35. I mean, can you imagine anything more miserable? And of course, on the 7th, the Japanese come into the war. This is Pearl Harbor, of course. America's in the war. And, you know, America does not come fully formed as the arsenal of democracy. Uh, these are long you know, it, it is an incredible story, you know, but back in the start of the war, they have an army that is the 19th largest in the world. They have, they start the war um, in 1939 with 74 fighter planes and 52 heavy bombers. You know, uh, uh, ground zero is effectively June 1940, when Roosevelt realizes that, you know, the, the Atlantic is not necessarily the barrier that all the isolationists think it is, and that actually they need to really crank up with, with rearming. And yet there are huge debates about capitalism and big business against, you know, the little guy. And, and you know, there are almost more labor strikes in 1941 than any other year in US history, bar about a couple. Um, you know, this is Willow Run, which is in operation by 1942, uh, um, you know, a mile long, churning out B-24 bombers. But, but there, are, there is a big, big old drama and journey before America can come to that position. You know, the arsenal of democracy is not a given. The potential is there in 1940. Whether the Americans can realize that potential is a completely different question altogether. It is an amazing story. I just don't have time to go into it here. But, but I promise you, this, this story about how they emerge uh, and are in a position to build all these B-24s and Jeeps and Sherman tanks and all the rest of it is absolutely incredible. Uh, and one of the key people, one of the key players is Henry Kaiser. You know, he's, a, he's just a businessman. He's overseeing the building of the Hoover Dam. He's overseeing huge amounts of road construction. What happens is the British come over with a, a headed, uh, shipping commission headed by a guy called Cyril Thompson, who is a young 30-something ship designer from Sunderland in northeast England. And he's come up with a, with a new design of a, of a new ship that can be kind of mass-produced um, and can be really, really simple. Um, and the first one is called the Empire Liberty, and it becomes the Liberty Ship. And he comes over with his blueprints, um, and he asks the Americans if they can um, if they can build these ships for them, for the British, you know, because they need a few more merchant ships, because obviously they are being sunk in the in the Atlantic. And the Americans go, well, you know, we're, we're, all our shipyards are busy um, and full building ships for the Navy. You know, really sorry, mate, but but you know, no. Um, so the only option is to make some new shipyards. And Kaiser goes. Well, I've made roads, I've made a dam, how hard can it be? Uh, and literally within four months and five months, he's built two new shipyards, one in, in um, Portland, Maine, and the other one in Richmond, which is just north of San Francisco. You know, literally from, you know, they, they think that just clearing out the mudflats is going to take six months. The whole thing is up and running. The first holes are being laid within four months in California and five months in, in Maine. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And what you then have is the Liberty ships, you know. And the whole idea of the Liberty ship is this is something that can be built really fast in 220 days. You know, that is the British aim. But that gets not kicked into touch in no time. Suddenly they're building them 125 days and then they're building 
building them in, in 75 days, and then they're building them in 50 days, and then they build them in 20 days, and then they build them in 10 days, and then on the 12th of November at about 3.57 p.m. Uh, in the afternoon of um, in 1942, um, one gets launched after four days and 15 hours. You know, I'm sorry, mate, but, you know, you Germans, you missed your chance. I mean, it's just, you know... It's not going to happen. Uh, and I've run out of time. Um, so I leave you at this sort of tantalizing point at the beginning of 1942. Um, but it's probably not a spoiler to tell you that, you know, the Allies won. <laughs> but I'll give you this point. But the general point is, is that most people assume that the Second World War is lost for Germany at Stalingrad, you know, which finally surrenders at the beginning of February 1943, or even Kursk, and that 1943 is really the critical year, that that is the year at the end of the Battle of the Atlantic. It is, you know, when they lose in North Africa or the rest of it. I think you can argue, again, argue convincingly that it's all over by November 1941. Uh, and I'll leave you with this final thought, that if you'll think about, about the Germans, and let's just take an arbitrary date, um, June the 16th, 1941. At that point, just you know, a few days before the launch of Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, the British, I mean, the Germans have one enemy, which is Great Britain, and admittedly her empire and dominions. Fast forward six, six months to the 16th of December. This is the day that Hitler sacks von Braukitsch, who is the commander-in-chief of the army, and appoints himself as commander-in-chief of the army. I mean, really bad decision. But think about that. Think how many enemies then. He's got Great Britain with her empire, huge global fleet, you know, reached around the whole world. United States, just about to become the arsenal of democracy. And the Soviet Union that's moved all its industry 600 miles east to the Urals, east of Moscow to the Urals. Do you think, seriously, that the Germans are going to win when, you know, by December 1941? I, they just, they can't. And, you know, the point is, is brilliant generals can win a battle but they can't win a long war. When, when they failed in 1940 to win against Britain, they were in big, big trouble. Uh, and unfortunately, the war still had a long way to go because of the maniacal will of the Fuhrer, because of the fear of what would happen when they were defeated. Um, you know, you reap what you sow. The violence in the Soviet Union is going to come back um, because of some misguided sense of honor of some of the German commanders, people like Kessering and stuff, who just kept fighting, even though it was clear that they were going to lose. Uh, and sort of, you know misguided belief in wonder weapons and so on. And, and so it went on until 1945, but, but, but it was all over by, by 1941, definitely. Thank you. Now, Bert, Bert told me that um, I, could do, um, I could go over by 10 minutes with questions. So as far as I'm concerned, I've got 10 minutes to answer questions if anyone's got any. Yes, here. Hold on, just wait, wait for a mic if that's okay. Down here, down here. Yep. Hi, uh, I just wanted to ask a bit about the sources that you use to get all this information. The sources? Yeah. Uh, well, actually, it's mainly primary sources. It's just going back to... But first of all, once you start thinking about mm, the operational level, and you start looking at stuff, it, the, the really exciting thing is, is you can go and look through huge piles of, sort of you know, German um, archives and, and, and sources and materials and primary, you know, production figures, costs. I mean, you can find the cost of a, an MG30 
Four, for example, you can find the cost of a tank. You can find out how much iron is used compared to a British or an American one. All those sort of things can be found out. But the really interesting thing is, is, is starting to look at sources which haven't really been used or, or ways of looking at material that hasn't been used, such as Whitaker's Almanacs or you know, training pamphlets. I've, I spent a, lot, a huge amount of time looking at training pamphlets, for example. And, and it, you know, the conclusion is, is that actually training was basically the same. I mean, you know, you look at, um, for example, a, an American or a British or a German infantry training manual, they're all basically the same, except at the back of the German ones, a huge section on horses. And, and, you know, and it does, you know, once you start looking at that operational level, there's actually a massive stuff on the economics of war um, that just hasn't been looked at. And it, and it is very exciting when you go into an archive and you get out a folder and you just know that no one's looked at it for 50 years and you're the first eyes on that. And, you know, there's there's the swastika and eagle stamp and there's Hitler's signature and stuff. I mean, that it is it is detective work and it is really, really thrilling. I think, I think the problem with the Second World War, and this is the point I was trying to make at the beginning, is there is so much assumed knowledge. So, you know, a new historian comes along and goes, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do a new book on the Second World War. What I'll do is I'll, I'll look up a little few more papers of, of Eisenhower. I'll actually go to Eisenhower's presidential library and I'll look up even more than just the biographies that have already written about him. And I'll have even more insights into what it was like in Eisenhower's headquarters. And then I'll look at some more diaries and letters um, from an archive that no one's thought about um, um, which will give me um, eyes on the ground of what it was like being a soldier in the front line or whatever. But all the other stuff in the middle, that operational level, let's just rely on assumed knowledge. So you get lines in books that says, you know, German machine guns were the best small arms in the Second World War. And, you, you know, it's, it's based on absolutely nothing, the flakiest of, of, of evidence. So it's, it's a question about, really, it's about once you've decided that actually this does need investigating, it's about pursuing and seeing through those lines of investigation that uh, enable you to look at this in a different way. I hope that answers your question. It's, it's, it's really fun. I mean, it's, it's the exciting bit. I mean, I, 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 I can still remember the thrill of, of seeing that, that piece about the complete and aesthetic weapons because I've been concluding that. I mean, you know, that there is a, German, a British gas mask case from 1942. And, and with amazing prescience... It's got a compartment for a wallet, iPhone, Moleskin, iPad. You know, it's amazing what you can fit in there. Those guys in 1937 really were thinking ahead. Uh, but of course, it's canvas and it's cheap, and I've gone through quite a few of them, you know, and when it's worn out, I just throw it away and I get another one. There are still lots you can get. Um, whereas the German one, the German gas mask case, is, is metal and, it, and it's ribbed. We've all seen pictures of German troops, and it's the cylinder that sort of sits on their backside. As a leather strap, of course, not a, not a canvas one. Um, and it's got a hinge on it, and you can pull the hinge out, and you open it up, and on the inside is another little case, and inside is these gossamer wires on a spring which keep a spare set of extra lenses. And the whole thing's a complete waste of money. I mean, it's, it's heavy, it's cumbersome, it's awkward. It's steel. I mean, you know, haven't they got panzers to make? I mean, you know, it's just, it's just an utter waste of time. And what you see is, is that the Germans, you know, they're, they're so short of resources, and yet they're not using those meagre resources that they do have in the best possible way. They're not getting the best out of it. Whereas I think when you look at particularly Britain, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious I'm focusing on the West, but when you look at Britain and the United States, they're really eking out the absolute maximum of what they've got. Uh, and by and large, using those resources incredibly sensibly. Whereas the Germans are just being incredibly cavalier and, and wasteful. And what I said at the beginning about the, the shaky foundations is absolutely true. I mean, the whole Nazi edifice is, you know, God, I've been around so many German bunkers and bits of concrete. And I mean, you, you just wouldn't believe the scale of 
the building effort they did to, to, to try and defend themselves and to try and win the war. I mean, you know, I mean, what was the point of all the concrete in the channel lines, for example? It had absolutely no strategic benefit whatsoever. I mean, just an utter waste of time. Yes, sir, over there. Can you, can you comment on Hitler's internal political strategy where he divided up the Waffen-SS and the Wehrmacht, and I think there was a third group, and the idea was that you'd have divide and conquer where he would be in charge of the army. He was always afraid of his generals. And then they were supposed to interfight with each other to gain prominence. But surely that in itself was an extraordinarily destructive policy, which, which led to the horrific defeat that they suffered. Uh, I don't know, yeah. is, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's completely counterproductive. I and mean, what you have to understand about the SS is the SS is a paramilitary unit, unit which is, is you know, part of the Nazi, it is the Nazi party machinery, whereas the Wehrmacht is the German national armed forces. And the Waffen-SS, because, you know, the Waffen-SS is the fighting arm, the Allgemein-SS is the police and security arm. So it is... Basically, Allgemeine SS are going around doing the Einsatzgruppen. It is Waffen SS that are doing the fighting at the front. But because they're SS, they get a kind of priority of, of production of tanks and all the rest of it, which is why they tend to be kind of motorized and, you know, have trucks and panzers and, and fancy la da you know, um, camouflage and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, it's all part of the, I mean, the reason the Waffen SS grows is because of Himmler. Uh, and because, you know, he's got the ear of Hitler, and Hitler just goes, yeah, whatever, that's fine. It's, it's not Hitler that's particularly driving it. Hitler then drives it post the, the July plot of 1944. That's when the, the Waffen-SS really starts to take over. And that's because Hitler feels he can't trust his generals, but he can trust his SS. We can't even really trust them. But, I mean, you know, you're absolutely, absolutely right. It's, it's, it's completely inefficient. It's, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and it is just a, another sign of his paranoia, really. I mean, the point about the SS is it's supposed to be the elite of the elite and all the rest of it. I mean, the, tr the truth is, is that some of them are quite well trained and some of them aren't. I mean, you know, the, the Hitler Jugend division, for example, the 12th Hitler Jugend division, you know, most of them are very young conscripts. They've only had six weeks of training before they go into action in Normandy. They're incredibly fanatical. They're, they're disciplined. They'll do, you know, if they say, charge over that field with your panzers and your half tracks, they'll do it. Um, but that doesn't make them good soldiers. Yes, sir. Sorry, could I just ask, um, round about the period of the end of May of 41, uh, after uh, Belgium had fallen and France was, was uh, obviously had surrendered as well, uh, was there any serious thinking in uh, Britain of trying to negotiate with Hitler, either directly or through the Italians, or is that all just a myth? No, no, absolutely not at all. The, 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 the closest Britain comes to being defeated is Monday the 27th of May 1940. And that's the point where um, the uh, evacuation of Dunkirk is only one day old. It's enacted the previous evening on the Sunday the 26th. Um, they know the Belgians are about to surrender. Um, and the belief is that only about 45,000 men are going to be uh, picked up off the beaches. They've underestimated the value of the weather. They've underestimated the fact that you know there's going to be ten tenths cloud cover the whole time. They've underestimated the ability of the 16 British infantry battalions and similar number of French to defend the perimeter. And they've underestimated. They haven't appreciated that there's a huge mole in which you can double stack destroyers 24/7, um, which can then take them back. Which is why ultimately they and, and they also underestimate the fact that the Stukas can't see um, and that actually Stuka dive bombers aren't very good on moving targets. So a Stuka is 
is incredibly effective on a kind of you know fixed railhead, for example. But when you're diving from 6,000 feet on a destroyer full of troops, it looks like a pencil and it's moving around all over the sea, which is why most of them got away. You know, only something like 30 vessels in the entire, out of 230 were sunk by air power in, in the Dunkirk evacuation. So it all looks incredibly bleak. And at this point, Halifax, who is the foreign secretary, um, says to Churchill, I really think we should explore kind of peace feelers and has been saying this for the last couple of days and it comes to a head and they have a huge argument and Halifax threatens to resign. Had Halifax, who is the most respected politician in Britain, resigned on that Monday, that would have brought down the government. And, you know, don't forget that you know, Churchill's only a kind of couple of weeks plus into his premiership and doesn't have the reputation that he does now. At the time, he's got a reputation as being kind of, you know, loose cannon, bit of an old soak, um, you know, dodgy judgment and all the rest of it. So um, that would have been catastrophic. But fortunately, Chamberlain, who was the previous prime minister, this is just between the war cabinet, which is only five members strong. Uh, Chamberlain sides with um, with Churchill, even though he's a great friend, personal friend of Halifax. And uh, Churchillian charm comes in and he managed to soothe Halifax and prevent him from resigning. And the crisis passes. And, you know, that same day is the day that they discover that the mole can take these destroyers. And, you know, suddenly the picture starts to pick up the following day following day that Tuesday the 28th Churchill calls in the whole wider cabinet which is about 30 men and does well of course we're never going to surrender we won't even consider doing um, any choices there's a brilliant book about this called Five Days in May by a chap called John, John Lukacs um, who's an American professor and does it in forensic detail I mean I've written about it in forensic detail in my book on the Battle of Britain as well but it is um, it is an amazing period but that is the closest Britain comes to war and that is because Halifax is not a military man um, he doesn't have that same geopolitical understanding that Churchill does and that is a you know I, I've, I don't think you should underestimate the huge importance that um, Roosevelt and Churchill do play in the Second World War that 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 vision is is what sets them apart you know we all know that Churchill meddled too much and some of his ideas were a bit cranky and all the rest of it but both Churchill and Roosevelt they see the big picture and that is because they're men of the world because they've read their history because they've traveled the world because you know they they've got you know they've got wise heads you know the, the they, they have everything that Mussolini and Hitler don't have in terms of kind of vision and overall view of the world. And that helps them. And, you know, what Churchill recognizes in May is that Britain's got a huge amount in its favor. That, yes, you know, Dunkirk has been a disaster, but actually we do have the, the empire. We do have control of the seas. You know, we have 10,000 merchant ships in 1940, world's largest fleet. You know, most of the Norwegian fleet has come over. It's the third largest fleet in the world. We have access to... 80 to 85% of the world's merchant shipping. You know, and in actual fact, you know, in the in the Battle of the Atlantic, we lose 1.4% of shipping. You know, 85% of all convoys get through unscathed. You know, we just tend to dramatically focus on the ones that get hit, you know, where they can be a bit of a slaughter, but most of them get through scot-free. And, and you know, there is a lot in our favor. And you don't need to, to, to panic. You don't need to press the panic button yet. And, and he recognizes rightly, in a way that Halifax doesn't, that once the door is open ajar, you can never shut it again. And he's absolutely right, and he prevails. And that is the, the biggest crisis point. By May 1941, I know there's rumours of, sort of Rab Butler getting having conversations and things like this, but, but I've never found them you know, substantiated in any way whatsoever. Uh, uh, hello. Very hello. impressed. This question might be somewhat redundant after you reminded us earlier that your focus is on the West, but when you mentioned Operation Barbarossa yes. and, and contrasted it to France, where the Germans were able to scoop up lots of tanks and infantry and used those to their advantage. And Russia avoided that whatsoever. Do you think this was a thought that they had independently, or were they watching and learning from the mistakes that the French made by being 
What, the Soviet Union? You think the Soviet Union were watching the, what the, the mistakes the French made? Is that what you mean? Yes. Um, well, no, because to start off with, the, the Russians are really not very good and they, they allow themselves to be um, outflanked and enveloped in this kettleschlag, this cauldron war, and, and completely isolated. And it takes them a while to learn. And one of the reasons is because of the purges. So the command isn't particularly good to start off with. And what you find is, is that when you're suddenly having to expand your military and you're suddenly having to fight at much larger battles uh, and a prolonged war, um, you're it's only once you've actually got some experience of fighting that you know who your good guys are, that you know that your Rokossovskis, for example, can can step up and become army group commanders and your Zukovs and Konyevs and all the rest of it. It takes time. It's exactly the same with the British Army, incidentally. Um, so I don't think the, the lessons from France are learned by the Red Army at all. I think what happens in the Soviet Union is is what they do learn by 1942 is the value of just retreating and retreating before they can be enveloped just coming out of rage because actually they can afford to space to, to trade space for time and, and what they do start to realize is that all you've got to do is let the germans keep going and they'll run out of steam which inevitably they do and, you know the germans then try again in the summer of 1942 you know they've been had this terrible setback in the winter of 41 42 they try again in the summer of 1942 and they concentrate most of their effort on going south to the oil fields in the, in the Caucasus. That is their ultimate game. But again, it's utterly pointless. I mean, what are they going to do once they get to the oil fields? I mean, when they get to Mykop, which is in the northwest part of the Caucasus, the Russians set it on fire, so they can't use it. Um, presumably, the Russians would have done exactly the same had they got to Baku in Azerbaijan. But just assuming they didn't, even if the Germans did manage to get to that, the third largest oil fields in the world with them intact, how are they going to move this oil back to Germany? I mean, you know, oil moves around the world by ship. They don't have any, and they don't have access to the world's oceans. Uh, and the alternative is by pipeline. Well, there aren't any, not in 1940, 42. There are a few, and they're all going east to the Urals, to the, to, from, from Baku to, to the, the new factories in the Urals. The only alternative is the Reichsbahn, the German railway, but that's already fit to bursting. And they don't have enough containers that can take oil. And they don't have the means of refining it. So... It's la-la land. I mean, it is absolutely bonkers. Uh, and, anyway, and it doesn't happen anyway. They run out of steam because they've reached their culmination point, which is this point where you can no longer achieve what you, what you want. Um, so sorry, that's a very long-winded and slightly um, red herringy kind of answer. But um, um, no, I don't think the Russians learned from the French. It's a long shot of it. Yes? A uh, slightly tangential question. What uh, was Hitler's relationship with Rommel? Because he wasn't a Nazi, was he? And secondly, the Allies... I understand he wasn't. Oh, Rommel was really enamoured by... Well, not the Irish guy I met in Listol, but the guy... Um, the real Rommel um, was really enamoured by Hitler. He was, he was in charge of his own personal... Uh, um, bodyguard effectively the, the Wehrmacht bodyguard he was in charge of that in 1939 and uh, he thought Hitler was absolutely marvellous um, but, 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 but later on he became disillusioned because he realised they weren't going to win the war of which he was absolutely quite correct but he wasn't to say he wasn't I mean you know, he had lots of Nazi swatskas all over him he was a general a field marshal he could have said I'm not going to fight anymore I think you know what you're doing is rotten and he didn't I mean none of the German commanders did I mean this is, this is actually one of the main reasons why the war continued was because too many supposedly in inverted commas good Nazis um, carried on fighting 
I mean, you know, Kesselring deciding to fight in southern Italy, for example, he didn't have to. I mean, so, no, no German commander was ever executed or put in prison for not doing what Hitler asked, told him no, to do. The question I want to ask you was, was, was did the Allies answer? hold him in some regard, Rommel? As, as I thought he was seen as, as being quite good at his job, even, you know, just... Well, he, was a, a, he was a very good, what we would call a very, very good tactical commander. I'm sure if you mess him for dinner, you'd find him, you know, charming and delightful. But but you 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 can't disassociate senior most of the German senior the senior German commanders. You cannot disassociate them from the part they played. I mean, they they were the instruments of Hitler's will, and they had a choice. They didn't have to do it. I mean, they were soldiers. They're professional soldiers, and their ambition, and they have a sense of pride and German pride and all the rest of it. Um, you know, Rommel is clearly not an ardent Nazi, but, but you know, he was very in awe of Hitler in the late 1930s. There's absolutely no question about it. And he was right into 1940. And, you know, and, and you know, he was more of a kind of more honourable than most. But, I mean, yeah. Uh, so, uh, your picture of the Second World War, it seems to me, it, it reminds me of, of the Six-Day War in 1967, where uh, what appears to be a kind of David and Goliath struggle uh, is actually more or less a foregone conclusion. So my question is, uh, the picture you've created, did that exist in the minds of people at the time? Or did it seem like an epic struggle between almost equal sides? That's a really, really good question. Um, I think when, when Britain and France declared war, I think they did it with heavy hearts, but I think with a certain amount of confidence that, that ultimately they would prevail. And I think the reason they thought they would prevail was because of their greater industrial might and their greater access to the world's resources so the broad plan was to just sit and wait wait for the germans to attack absorb that attack and then counterattack, and then kind of push on and, and, and actually funny enough ultimately that is basically what what happened although not with france um or certainly not with france until 19 you know 1943 44 um what is definitely the case is that that, that the three levels of war were understood much more greatly at the time than they were. I mean, if you look at any kind of propaganda films from the time, a lot of them are focusing on factories and production and all the rest of it. A huge play was put on that. And of course, part of that is because it's easier to get a film unit into a factory than it is to the battlefront. But not, that's not entirely the reason. So I think there is a, there is a general kind of understanding of resources and certainly that you know a lot of german leaders i mean fritz todd you know famously or infamously he was the armaments minister you know he says to hitler in, in a kind of sort of rare outburst of frankness says to hitler you know my fear I, I i we cannot win the war this is in november 1941 and hitler says well what do you think we should do about it he says sue for peace you know fritz todd dies in a air crash you know in february 1942 um so, so yeah, I think that I think there is a bigger understanding of the importance of resources. I mean, you know, that that is why you know the Germans go into Soviet Union in 1941 because they know that if they don't get these resources, they're going to be stuffed. Um, but there is a sort of you know hubristic belief that that Soviet Union is going to be an easier nut to crack than France, and of course they, they're just looking at it in the wrong way. Does that sort of answer your question? Uh, yeah, thank you. Okay, folks, um, thank you very much. Thank you very much for all your questions. We could go on and on, but we we have a another schedule, and uh, James has given us a fantastic overview. I, mean, I know you said it's, <laughs> it's a long war, but you got through an awful lot of it in that space of time. And I can assure you folks, uh, James's books are every bit as engaging and as exciting as his uh, talk here was today. And there are some outside, and uh, he'd be happy to sign them uh, if you buy them. And 
I, I encourage you to do so if you haven't read them already. They're really fantastic. We're thrilled to have James here with us. Uh, we've been trying to get him for a couple of years and uh, we're delighted to have him here today. And I'm sure you'll join me in thanking him for such a fantastic presentation. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. Thank you.